Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Well, good afternoon, and what a great pleasure to be here. And thank you, Joel, for your very kind introduction. You know, it was said of Henry Kissinger that he did not require an introduction, but he always insisted on one. <laughs> I did not insist on this, uh, but Joel was very kind. And I'm uh, very grateful to, to Mary Curtin, uh, to the University of Minnesota, and to the, the Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs, uh, and also to Global Minnesota, to Mark Ritchie and his tremendous gang. Uh, who have um, brought me out here with the help of the United Health Group and, and others. And it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I was born in Minneapolis. Uh, in fact, I was born right here at the University of Minnesota. Uh, the University of Minnesota Hospital was a teaching hospital, I assume it still is. And so my mother and I participated in a teaching event. <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to be back. Uh, I, I did not last long here. My father, um, here for a period of time. Uh, in the uh, Naval ROTC program, he came here as a young lieutenant and assistant professor and lecturer in naval science. And uh, when he left active duty, he then transferred to the law school and finished his uh, law degree here. Did about a year of private practice when my mother convinced him that they had sailed out of San Diego. Uh, he had sailed on destroyers out of San Diego. And uh, my mother convinced him um, that as great as Minneapolis was, uh, uh, they were going to raise their family in San Diego. And so I grew up in California, uh, but I still have relatives here. I have relatives buried at Fort Schnelling. Um, in fact, I'm going to be marrying another one, uh, an uncle of mine on Friday, uh, World War II veteran, and died recently at 93 years of age. But I also have cousins uh, here in Minneapolis and in Rochester. Uh, and I have my youngest son here today. Um, in fact, he's with us, um, a young architect and general contractor who's busy changing the face of, of Minneapolis neighborhoods. And so uh, so what can I say except I feel very welcome here and uh, very, very happy to be here and very grateful. Uh, although I do have to admit that Great Minnesota has a sense of humor. Um, I'm, they put me up at the Radisson Blue Hotel, which is a fantastic hotel. But I discovered on Sunday morning when I woke up and went downstairs to have breakfast, that the Philadelphia Eagles were staying at. <laughs> and, you know, um, I've always been a, a sympathizer with the, um, the Vikings, but I'm also a Redskins fan, and I don't like the Eagles. <laughs> and, and so, um, not only was I surrounded by people wearing Eagle paraphernalia, but then I realized that they had set up stanchions where all the fans could stand as um, all the Eagles passed by into their buses. And so I, I thought this was a bit much. Um, but, uh, but luckily, once the Eagles were gone, I noticed that all kinds of people wearing Vikings paraphernalia came into the hotel. And so I figured this was some kind of purification ritual. They <laughs> <laughs> were intent on it. I mean, Minnesota nights, okay? Okay, we can stay here, we can get on the bus, but we're taking it back. <laughs> after all. And so I was glad to see the Vikings win. So congratulations. But listen, um, you know, when I, when I was invited out here, it was my purpose to, to talk a bit about um, American foreign policy uh, in what I consider to be an age of uncertainty. And when I say an age of uncertainty, 
I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, this is different from an age of risk or an age of challenge or an age of opportunity um, because we really are in a, a moment of a great flux and transformation uh, around the globe. Uh, and this creates an environment in which people really aren't sure how markets are going to develop, how commerce will develop, how political and diplomatic relations are going to develop. And if the most powerful nation in the world, the, the world, uh, the nation that has really helped shape and build the global order that we exist within today, begins to have doubts about its own purpose and begins to question what it has accomplished and why it has accomplished it, and begins to have a larger debate about our purpose in the world, that reverberates in a really dramatic and impressive way around the globe and causes people to question their own purpose and also causes others to realize that there's an opportunity present that they might be able to take advantage of. And in this environment, it's important to understand um, that as long as the United States is uncertain about its purpose, the world will be uncertain about its purpose, um, at least for as long as we all live. And so it's important, I think, to take a, a look at what's happening around the globe and, and, and what's driving it. And so my purpose is really to have a, a larger conversation about American foreign policy and the very special challenges that um, are presented to all of us by the profound changes that are transforming the world that we live in today. But um, in the process, I really hope to make a larger point, which is a positive point. And that is that I believe that we are at a moment of eclipse and rebirth <coughs> in American foreign policy that's just as consequential as that which happened after World War II when it fell to the United States and its allies to rebuild a world that had been destroyed by global catastrophe, by global war, uh, and to rebuild it in a way that not only protected American interests, but also projected American values. Um, in other words, I think that in the words of Harry Truman's Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, we are once again present at the creation. But let me start by addressing the immediacy of the challenges facing the United States and the Trump administration. Uh, you've all been following the news, you've been following events in, in northern Syria and Turkey and Iraq and, and beyond, and uh, the events in Ukraine, and all the immediate political impact of that uh, here in the United States. But if, uh, if you had to kind of lay out maybe the 10 biggest challenges facing the United States and the Trump administration at this point in time, I would argue that they would roughly fall uh, into the kind of following 10 or maybe even 11 categories. Um, the first, from my point of view, would be uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, otherwise known as North Korea, and the nuclear challenge that uh, the DPRK presents to the United States and to the well-being of allies on the Korean Peninsula in the Republic of Korea, but also in Japan and beyond. The second issue would be Iran, especially Iran in the aftermath of the decision by the United States to remove itself from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or the Iran nuclear deal, and what this means uh, for peace and stability in the Persian Gulf and broadly in the larger Middle East. I would say the third challenge is Russia and how we manage not only Russia's intent to involve itself in our internal politics, but also its effort to show that while it might not be part of any solution, it can be part of every problem. <laughs> and as part of every problem, it needs to have its views understood and considered. The fourth would be China and the larger Indo-Pacific, and that's not just the trade agenda, it's not just how we work to shape China's behavior uh, as it 
seeks to establish itself as the world's greatest economy and largest market, uh, but also its ambitions beyond China, especially in the larger Indo-Pacific region. And for anybody who's been tracking Chinese behavior in the South China Sea, it's evident that they are concerned that the United States Navy can still strangle China by closing the straits and closing movement of shipping uh, through uh, the, the South China Sea. Uh, but it's important to understand that as China looks at the world today, its strategic goal is not the larger Pacific, because it is ringed by archipelagos and peninsulas, all of which are democratic, from the Korean Peninsula to Japan, to the Philippines, to Indonesia, to Australia and New Zealand. Its real uh, interest is in the Indian Ocean. It's getting through the South China Sea into the Bay of Bengal, into the larger Indian Ocean, where two-thirds of the world's oil and gas transits, where two-thirds of the world's trade and manufactured goods transit, and where fully one-third of the world's population lives. And so how we manage that, that effort of Chinese expansion as it also builds its one belt, one road policy, which is all about building a back door out of China uh, and giving it additional access to world markets and world resources by working around India and through, through Pakistan into Central Asia and into the, the markets of, of Europe. Um, and, and so how we, how we manage that larger uh, strategic challenge and how we find a way to adjust and accommodate China's rise without having to go to war with it uh, is a, a significant challenge. The, second, uh, the fifth issue, I think, would be NATO, historic alliance, larger Atlantic alliance, and especially the area of burden sharing. And this connects to uh, Brexit and to Britain's decision to pull itself out of the European Union. And although that does not immediately affect NATO, it does have an impact on how the United Kingdom relates to the rest of Europe and how our Atlantic alliance, which has really been the cornerstone of American foreign policy, especially our Cold War policy as we confronted the Soviet Union, but increasingly our policy as we confront a predatory Russia, um, how how, how we manage that and, and how we enhance NATO's role uh, while the European Union addresses its own internal uh, issues of consistency and content uh, would be number five on my list. Number six would be Syria and ISIS. And the ISIS issue is going to become more important, especially as the United States decides to pull out of Syria, because um, the potential for an ISIS rebirth uh, in Syria itself and then that, uh, a movement down the Euphrates River Valley back into Iraq and the reestablishment of the kind of fight we've just fought ourselves out of is real and significant. The seventh issue would be Afghanistan and Pakistan and how we find a way to end 18 years of American combat in Afghanistan and how in the process we try to rebuild a relationship with Pakistan, which historically was a strategic relationship with the United States and played a central role in President Nixon and Henry Kissinger's efforts to build a channel of communication to China and change U.S. relations with China, uh, but which has suffered deeply over the 18 years that we fought in Afghanistan to the point in which Pakistan becomes the haven uh, for Osama bin Laden. And we have to launch covert raids inside of Pakistan uh, to find and kill Osama bin Laden what that has done to our relationship that at one point was hugely important to us and could be important to us in, in the future. The eighth issue would be Mexico uh, and how we manage the emergence of nationalist, re-emergence of nationalist sentiment in Mexico, and especially the government of this Manuel Lopez Obrador, otherwise known as AMLO, 
who's intent on addressing internal social justice related issues in, in Mexico in a way that is not hostile to the United States, but at the same time does not carry forward the same kind of engagement uh, that has uh, dominated the U.S.-Mexico relationship over time and how we manage it in an environment in which the current administration, the Trump administration, has decided to make trafficking of people and migration through Mexico the centerpiece of, of our relationship with Mexico. The ninth issue would be Venezuela and how we address a country which is not only in the midst of tearing apart its democracy, but of tearing apart itself. Uh, and if we're not careful, uh, we, we will be able to see that, or we, we will be able to tell our grandchildren that we remember the country called Venezuela that no longer exists. Because I really do think in many ways what we're seeing right now is the destruction of Venezuela, not just as a political entity, but as a country and, and, and a culture. And then finally, uh, I would argue that Saudi Arabia and the larger Gulf community and the security of the Persian Gulf, uh, and that includes our allies from Kuwait to the United Arab Emirates, um, would also figure deeply and importantly uh, in, in that kind of top 10 agenda of American foreign policy challenges. And I'm sure as I walk through these, you must be saying to yourself that there's any number of residual or chronic problems that aren't on that list. There's nothing about Yemen or the terrible war that's taking place there. There's nothing about South Sudan and a never-ending civil war that has cost over a million lives. There's nothing about Central America or especially the Northern Triangle countries of Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras and the migration that is moving out of those countries through Mexico to the United States. There's nothing about the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is probably the longest running and the most gruesome warfare um, that this world has seen in a long time. And there's nothing about Burma or the Rohingya, uh, the Muslim minority ethnic groups of Burma who have been forced into Bangladesh uh, in what is really the first 21st century effort at um, ethnic cleansing or genocide. So there's a lot that I missed in that top 10 list. And you know, the, the dramatic and the consequential nature of these challenges, I think, would cause even the most valiant heart to flutter. And it's really a good reason not to get out of bed in the morning. I mean, if you're Donald Trump, or if you're Mike Pompeo, or if you're Gina Haspel at CIA, or if you're Mike Esper at the Department of Defense, why would you get out of bed in the morning if, if this is the kind of agenda you're going to face? But my own view is that um, these are all important issues. And, and I'm happy to talk about any of them um, when you get to question and comment. But I really wanted to take a, a, a look beyond these very topical and specific issues and talk a little bit about the kinds of deeper changes that are uh, reshaping the world in, in which we live. And um, I have some help in this. Uh, our intelligence community, um, through um, the National Intelligence Council, has an entity called the Strategic Futures Group. And it is a group that looks at um, what's happening in the world, tries to identify the drivers of change, and then the trends that those uh, drivers of change produce, and then try to use that to allow a certain degree of foresight as we look into the future and try to understand how we manage uh, our foreign policy and what we can expect from the world as we get deeper into the 21st century. And every year, uh, but not every year, every administration, the uh, Strategic Futures Group of the National Intelligence Council produces a report called Global Trends. 
Um, these are unclassified reports. They're available um, on the internet. All you have to do is Google global trends and they'll pop up. And um, there are two global trends reports that are worthy of note. The first was done at the beginning of the Obama administration. It's called Global Trends Alternative Worlds. And the second was done at the beginning of the Trump administration. It's called Global Trends, The Paradox of Progress. And taken together, these two reports, I think, really provide a, a remarkable insight into the kind of world we're living in and the kind of world that we'll be facing as we look deeper into this century. And um, without kind of simplifying too much, the, uh, uh, the Global Trends reports really identify four major drivers of change in the world. The first of these is what they call the rise of the individual, the empowerment of the individual, and the rise of a global middle class. And this is a profound social event. It has to do with the enormous movement of, of wealth and riches from west to east. Uh, historically, middle classes have been the product of economic growth in North America and Northern Europe, with one or two exceptions. Um, but today, the middle class is a global phenomenon. You find the middle class not only in Japan and China, there are more middle class members of, of China than there are people in the United States today, over 300 million. There's a middle class in India, in Pakistan, in Nigeria, in South Africa, in Iran, in Turkey, and, and beyond. And middle classes fundamentally change how domestic politics take place. Um, because middle classes share uh, commonalities across boundaries and across frontiers. Uh, they want to focus on good healthcare, good education, good security, and good job, job opportunities. They want to be able to anticipate what the future looks like for their children and grandchildren. And they don't want that future to be their past. They want it to be something new and different. And this puts enormous um, uh, strain on governments that are used to managing problems as opposed to advancing societies. And you would think that this would be a huge advantage for the United States because we are a middle class country. We understand the nature of the consumer economy. We understand what middle class um, communities want and what they need, and we know how to respond to them. And this is, in fact, true. We have been able to take advantage of this and look for ways to connect our societies, connect our civil societies, our businesses, our universities, our laboratories, our faith communities, uh, to find ways to enhance communication and look for better ways to, to, to promote collaboration across national boundaries. Um, but middle classes also generate nationalism. They also uh, generate pride in, in country and pride in self. And, and this also has an impact uh, on how countries relate to each other as domestic politics change. But also with the rise of the individual, what we're seeing increasingly in democracies in particular, but also in some authoritarian governments, is that the measure of success within a political system is not whether someone has an ability um, to express themselves politically. It's no longer just about having citizens decide if they have a role in determining national destiny. It's really about giving citizens a role in determining their own individual destiny. In other words, as I mentioned, having access to the resources and the opportunities necessary to be successful. And so this is changing how governments um, are measured by their own citizenry and increasingly what legitimacy consists of. Because while democratic legitimacy still is about choice and elections and process, at the end of the day, it's also about results. It's also about do democratic governments deliver the goods 
And with authoritarian governments, it's increasingly about do authoritarian governments deliver the goods? And if they don't, they got a problem. So first driver of, of change, rise of the individual and the global middle class. The second is what's called the transformation of power and the flattening of the world. And at one level, that's quite obvious. It's all about the fact that the United States is the only surviving superpower or hyperpower. And that the United States is the only country that has the ability to project its power anywhere at any time. But hidden within that is the recognition that the United States does not have the ability to, uh, to project its power everywhere all the time. In other words, we have to be judicious. We have to make choices about where we're going to use military power, where we're going to use economic power, where we're going to use political power. And we have to be careful about ensuring that we're successful because power is a unique commodity. It's like a gas. If you can encapsulate it, it can be very powerful. But if, it, if that encapsulation opens up, it disperses and is no longer powerful. And in this regard, um, uh, what we're finding in the world today is a rise of regional powers, some with global ambitions, um, but all intent on resolving regional challenges or taking advantage of regional opportunities, uh, and then seeing whether or not, seeing how much we care about it, and see whether we care to try to stop it ourselves, or shape it ourselves, or whether we're going to work with allies and partners to shape it. This is what's happening in the South China Sea, as I already mentioned, as the Chinese try to uh, guarantee an exit point for them out of the Pacific coast of China and test to what extent we are prepared to protect Taiwan and to protect a U.S. naval presence broadly in that part of the Pacific. It's what we're seeing in Ukraine and Crimea as the Russians address historic grievances that have to do with the the undoing of the Soviet Union and their effort to capture parts of Ukraine that they consider to be a cultural heartland uh, of Russia. Uh, it has to do with what I mentioned earlier, the decision by Burma to expel the Rohingya uh, uh, from, from Burma and force them in, into Bangladesh. It has to do with what Turkey is doing right now in Syria as it enters into Syria to address long-standing issues it's had with Kurds. Uh, in other words, all around the world, the United States is being challenged in very significant ways, but in ways that sit just below a level of conflict with the United States uh, as these countries attempt to measure our interests in either working with them or, or countering them. And as this has an obvious impact on the international system because it makes uh, global affairs a more effervescent uh, type of activity. And it means that we are entering into a period of almost guaranteed increased conflict of one sort or another. And the challenge we're going to face as the United States is how we involve ourselves in that conflict, when we step back from it, and when we try to use our allies <coughs> and partners to address it and manage the, the, the nature of the conflict. But there's something else that's hidden even deeper in all of this. And that is the changing nature of power. Because what has become apparent to anybody who has watched how we have fought in Afghanistan and Iraq, and has watched how others have fought around the globe, that increasingly material power, the power to, to deliver high explosives, uh, the power to deliver other forms of, of violence, uh, the ability to, to deliver um, or, or to use economic power, especially through sanctions, while still very important and very destructive, uh, is increasingly less effective. Um, if you remember the debate about strategic bombing in the 20th century, 
does it make sense to bomb people into nothingness? Um, we've learned over time when we dropped more bombs on Vietnam than we dropped on Germany, that maybe it doesn't work all the time. And what we're finding in our sanctions policy today is that even as we sanction country, countries in a brutal fashion, like Iran and Venezuela right now, with the purpose of completely breaking their economies, that while we can cause great damage to the economy, we don't necessarily convince these countries to do what we want them to do. And so then the question is, well, what is the purpose of our power if all we're doing is exercising it and causing harm, but not achieving the goals, the political goals we're, attempt we're attempting to, to, to capture? And as we think about um, groups like ISIS, that is, that is not an expression of power. <coughs> ISIS is an expression of something else of something deep and cultural um, that, um, that has affected how its membership understands the world and how it responds to power uh, in that world. And until we can capture and understand this changing nature of power and realizing that people who do not comply with us uh, are not necessarily going to be brought into line by the kind of violence we can bring to bear, we're going to have trouble managing the world that we live in. The third driver of change is demographics and what demographers call the aging of the world. This might strike you as odd, but I'm 61 years old and I am now a member of the fastest growing age cohort in the world. Who would have thought that the end of life is the fastest growing cohort, not the beginning of life? But the way wealth has been distributed, the way education has been distributed, the way healthcare has been distributed, the world is changing to a point where it is aging. This does not mean that there are not young parts of the world. They are. There are parts of the world that are what demographers call either structurally young or chronically young. And they present a very special challenge. They can be a huge advantage if those countries have economies that are growing, educational and training structures that can provide um, young women and young men with the capability to get jobs, and then economies that produce the jobs themselves. Then being chronically or structurally young is a competitive advantage. It allows you uh, at, at, to drive your economy forward at a much faster rate than you would otherwise be able to drive an economy. However, if, if countries don't have that, if countries instead are conflictive, if they're riven with disputes, if they have deep ethnic, religious, or social rivalries, and if they have civil unrest or insurgencies or conflicts or major terrorist groups or transnational crime, um, a chronically young population becomes a reason not to stop a conflict because you always have foot soldiers at your behest. You always have somebody else you can put into the fight. And so it makes solving problems harder over time uh, as the global community looks at this to address not just terrorism, transnational crime, but insurgency, civil war, and, and other kinds of, of, of combat. Um, the final driver of change is uh, the nexus of food, energy, and water. And increasingly, we are going to see that the conflicts in the world are going to take place in hydrological basins. They're going to take place around who controls access to energy, who controls access to water, and how you combine the two to produce food, and who controls that food. And especially as you look at environmental change, uh, otherwise known as climate change, it's not a political statement. But um, uh, we are increasingly going to see in large parts of the world either desert, des desertification, or the creation of deserts, or the expansion of deserts, 
for desalination of uh, fresh water, especially in areas like the Mekong Delta, which are going to make it increasingly hard uh, for communities to produce the food necessary to feed the peoples around them. And we are also going to see uh, something remarkable in our own hemisphere, uh, where there are the largest sources of fresh water in the world, both in North America and South America, the largest amounts of arable land in the world, and right now the two largest food producers and food exporters of the world, the United States and Brazil, which, working in tandem with Canada, Argentina, Uruguay, and Chile, would quite easily feed the world uh, with the right kind of um, financial inducements and market access. And we could find ourselves in a world in which increasingly, um, uh, whether it be in Central Asia or Southeast Asia or parts of Africa and beyond, people begin either cooperating and collaborating or fighting uh, around food, energy, and water, and then looking outwards for support in, in obtaining especially energy and, and food. So as we, as we look at these drivers of change, um, there are about seven trends that these drivers of change have been producing um, that are measurable. Uh, the first is that the rich are aging and the poor are not. The second is that the global economy is shifting to Asia, this larger movement of wealth uh, from west to east. The third is that technology is accelerating but creating discontinuities and inequality of access. Uh, in other words, if we continue along the same pace, especially in the area of artificial intelligence and our computing technologies and information management technologies, we're going to see not just a digital, digital divide, but a vast divide in capacity and access uh, to the technology that, that we are doing. Um, the fourth is that ideas and identities are creating a new wave of exclusion. And we're seeing this in Europe, we're seeing this here in the United States, but we're also seeing it in other parts of the world, where increasingly there is a reaction to globalization, there is a reaction to standardization or pattern enforcement, and people increasingly are looking for ways to identify themselves uh, in, uh, in a fashion that is meaningful. <coughs> sometimes it is through race, sometimes through ethnicity, sometimes through religiosity. And this in and of itself is not necessarily bad, but it creates the basis for conflict if it can be activated politically for that purpose. And we are starting to see this uh, already in different parts of the globe, and we need to understand and expect to see more of it. And the issue is, how do you get in front of that? How do you address it? The, the fifth trend is that governing is getting harder. And some of this has to do with the empowerment of the individual, and some of it has to do with the transformation of power itself. But increasingly, there are more and more veto players and fewer and fewer um, deal makers. And what this means is, is that um, you can, um, that there are, are groups, individuals, groups, entities that can position themselves to make governing harder and can act as, or can issue vetoes for certain kinds of government behavior. And not just domestic government, but also regional efforts at collaboration and efforts at global governance uh, through the United Nations. And as the institutions struggle in this environment, uh, it becomes very hard to get government done. And the, the sixth trend is that the nature of conflict is changing. And I kind of hinted at this when I talked about the transformation of power. But increasingly, you don't need a large military. You don't need lots of weapons uh, in order to carry out conflict. 
Um, we just need dedicated cadres of people who are prepared to risk life and limb in order to achieve something. Uh, and as the nature of conflict changes, we have to think about how we respond to it. We can't respond to it in tried and true fashions out of the 20th century. We have to understand better the social uh, and economic and political nature of the conflict that we're facing. And the final trend is that deferred challenges are converging and now require attention. And what I mean by this is that whether we're talking about the area of the environment, whether we're talking about global health care, whether we're talking about issues of social justice or inequality, we have any number of major issues which have been deferred over time, which governments have decided not to address, but now they're converging. And they're going to meet in the near future around environmental disasters, uh, global pandemics or health disasters, and they're going to meet at a moment in time in which the global institutions and the mechanisms of cooperation and collaboration that we would usually use to address them have become, have become weakened and, and harder to activate and use in, in a meaningful way. And as these drivers of change uh, and, and trends begin to kind of ripple through the world, they're producing, they're really transforming the world in front of us. And they really are fundamentally changing how people live, how people create and innovate, how people prosper or don't prosper, how people think, how people govern, how people fight. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this is not the first time the world has been transformed. But the transformation we're seeing now will be the fastest, the most far-reaching, and the one that affects the most people. And it will also be a transformation that challenges our understanding of what it means to be human. This is especially true if we've been following biosciences and life sciences, and what we're going to be able to do over the next several decades to the human body and to human genetics. Um, it's going to challenge um, our understanding of how societies cohere and the nature of the social contract that exists between the government and the government. And in many ways, the outcome of the period of time that we're entering right now is going to be determined by how we answer just a few questions. The first is how to create political order in an age of empowered individuals and rapidly changing economies, and how do individuals, groups, and governments renegotiate their expectations in order to achieve public order. The second is can states create new patterns of international uh, competition and cooperation? And what new kinds of global architecture will be built or rebuilt? And finally, um, can governments prepare now for the multifaceted problems that will soon overwhelm us, especially in the area of climate change and transformative technologies? And underlying the uncertainty that I talked about <coughs> at the beginning of this presentation is increasingly a lack of overall shared strategic understandings. In other words, um, it, it's become harder, not just to build cooperation and collaboration, but to build a common strategic understanding and approach to problems. And this, is, this, this has led to increasingly problem-centered, ad hoc, and issue-specific cooperation, kind of a coalition of the willing, which um, makes sense in the moment um, to try to address a problem. But we're dealing with, um, because there's no necessarily shared strategic understanding, once you get close to solving the problem, it breaks apart. And we're seeing this in Syria around ISIS right now, uh, where um, as we pull out, any, any um, 
cohesiveness in an effort to fight ISIS will begin to break down. And we're going to see this as the Turks, the Syrians, the Russians, the Iranians all begin to circle each other with knives drawn, uh, really worried more about each other than they are about uh, ISIS. Um, it also means that it's going to become increasingly hard uh, to work in a multidisciplinary way uh, or a multilateral way to solve problems. Uh, and also, uh, um, this has created kind of a loss of coherence and direction among interna international institutions. And anybody who's been tracking the World Trade Organization, the different regional organizations like the Organization of American States or the African Union, uh, or our global institutions like the UN and all of its subsidiary institutions, understands just how very difficult it is uh, to, to use these groups to address uh, problems that are greater than a, than a single nation state. And so, I guess, um, just to make you feel good today, um, <laughs> uh, the harder problems lie ahead, and there are breaks on collective agenda setting and cooperation. Which brings me back to Dean Acheson and his memoirs, President at the Creation. For those of you unfamiliar with Dean Acheson, he was Harry Truman's Secretary of State, but he served in the United States government from 1941 to 1952. He served under Franklin Roosevelt uh, and then uh, Harry Truman. And he wrote his memoirs, President at the Creation, um, uh, even though he left government at the end of the Truman administration in uh, 1953. Um, the beginning of 1953. Um, he didn't write his memoirs until 1969. And he waited because he always thought that memoirs were an act of self-justification or revenge. That the purpose you write is either to get back at somebody or to show everybody that you were right on the and, and he didn't think that was seen. And so he didn't write them, except as he got deeper into the 1960s and as the United States became embroiled uh, in Vietnam and as the disputes about the Vietnam War rippled through American society, he decided that it was important to explain why the United States had behaved the way it had behaved in the immediate aftermath of World War II, why it had created the institutions it had created, and what its purpose was in an effort to, to argue that the United States did have a role to play in the world, and that the, the way in which we behaved uh, had, a, uh, had a purpose. And you'll remember, he, this book is published in 1969. What happens in 1968? Martin Luther King is assassinated. Bobby Kennedy is assassinated. Lyndon Johnson decides not to run for office. The Democratic National Convention is held in Chicago uh, in a brutal public environment with demonstrations <coughs> and beatings. Hubert um, Humphrey becomes the Democratic candidate uh, and loses to Richard Nixon. Uh, and the United States sees not only riots in major cities, but huge demonstrations in Washington, D.C. Demonstrations that reach a point where um, machine gun nests are set up outside the Capitol and the White House to protect these institutions uh, from crowds. And so it's a period of, of great political conflict and controversy, greater than we face today. And, and, uh, but, but at a moment in which Atchison thought was extremely important to make a larger point. And so he publishes his book, President the Creation. And he starts his memoirs with an epigraph from King Alfonso X. You, of course, will remember that King Alfonso X was the king of Castile, Leon, and Galicia in about the 13th century. <laughs> but, but he had said at one point 
that had I been present at the creation, I would have given some useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. <laughs> and it was Atchison's point to deliver a few useful hints. And the theme of beginning plays very large in Atchison's work, but also the uncertainty that it implies. And Atchison wrote that the state of the world in those years, in other words, from 1941 to 1952, um, and almost all that happened during them was wholly novel within the experience of those who had to deal with them. And he described that period as one of great obscurity for those who lived through it. Now think about this for a minute. We like to think we won the Cold War. We like to think that we not only beat totalitarianism in Germany and militarism in Japan, but then we faced off against Russian communism, Soviet communism, and beat it. And so we look back on these years in a triumphal way. We look back on it almost as if it was something that was guaranteed. And yet here in 1969, you had Dean Atchison, who's the architect uh, of much of what actually led to, to victory in the Cold War and beyond, as saying that the period of time that he lived and worked through was one of great obscurity, and one in which the, the end or the, the accomplishment was, was uncertain. And he quoted the British historian C.D. Wedgwood, who wrote, history is lived forward, but it is written in retrospect. We know the end before we consider the beginning, and we can never wholly recapture what it is to know the beginning only. As I noted, I believe we are once again at the moment of beginning, of rebirth. But I believe it's that it is possible to capture and know what it means to look forward. And, you know, Atchison described the efforts of his colleagues, in other words, the ones who rebuilt the world, as defined by determination, boundless energy, and near complete ignorance of the challenges that they faced. Nonetheless, he called the work they had done an imaginative effort unique in history and even greater than that made in the preceding period of the fighting. In other words, from his point of view, what the United States did after World War II was greater than what it did during World War II. Think about that for a minute. Um, and he said that, that he and his colleagues, as they worked through these issues, were guided by what he called a corpus diplomaticum, which he described as a repository of precedent and common sense that acted as an aid to judgment. And he wrote, its central aim and purpose was to safeguard the highest interest of our nation, which was to maintain as spacious an environment as possible in which free states might exist and flourish. He described the response to the challenge that they faced as one of expanding action. In other words, always building out, building on the actions that you were doing, never retreating. But it's important to note that the global transformation that we faced following World War II is different and distinct from the one we face today. Dean Anderson and his colleagues faced a world destroyed by cataclysmic war. Our world is changing because of the extraordinary success of the American project and the world we shaped. And if you think about it, 
When I entered the Foreign Service in 1984, the Soviet Union was alive and well, and the Cold War was in full swing. I was sent to Central America to participate in what is now known as the Central American Wars, because Ronald Reagan decided to draw a line there and say this is where we were going to fight communism in the Americas. And over the course of my nearly 35 years in the Foreign Service, um, I saw the Soviet Union collapse. I saw its allies in Eastern Europe collapse. I saw the end of communism as a political and economic ordering mechanism. I saw the emergence of what was called a new world order. And the emergence and construction of a global economy, um, which allowed for this enormous economic development and social development that has shaped the world today. In other words, my career followed a trajectory of American power and accomplishment in which we really did not just transform the world that Dean Acheson had left us, but make it a world, not a half a world, but a whole world. Create a, a global phenomenon uh, that the world had never really experienced before. And, and this is a remarkable accomplishment, but it's an accomplishment that really sits with the United States and the American people and our allies and partners. Which brings me to a larger point about diplomacy. That it's not just about power. It's not just about the exercise of power or even the way in which we cooperate and collaborate. It's, all about, it's also about the values we project and that values matter and that our commitment, the United States' commitment, individual <coughs> freedoms, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are enormously attractive in the world today. And our open society, with its expansive opportunities, its openness to change and innovation, and, it, and the respect it accords to all our citizens, creates a rich and nourishing environment that attracts people from around the world. Our commitment to equity and fairness, articulated through the rule of law in our own institutions, makes equality something we can strive for, something that is real, and something that imparts dignity to each and every one of us. But just as values matter, so do stability and so do order, especially in a world that is beginning, in the words of Bill Haley in the comments, to shake, rattle, and roll. <laughs> But stability in this century, in the 21st century, cannot be imposed. It can only be negotiated. But the negotiations required cannot emanate from a single point, nor can they be realized in a single deal. Instead, they will depend on alliances and partnerships. But we also have to be able to talk to our adversaries. It's not just about our friends or our partners. We must understand that peace requires us to accommodate the interests and concerns of our adversaries, even as we protect our own. And this too requires diplomacy. It requires statesmanship. The world we are facing will be one defined by dynamism and persistent change. But we will decide if it is a world of confrontation, conflict, and human suffering, or if it is a world of peace, collaboration, and human advancement. In other words, it will be a world of our making. It will be a world of your making. And this instills me with confidence. First, because, as I've noted, we have faced such challenges before, and we have succeeded. We know we have the energy, the determination, 
and the imagination necessary to be successful. And now, we, unlike Dean Atchison, we cannot find ignorance because we know the challenges that we face. Second, and this is important, we have never lost a peace. While our historians focus on winning and losing wars, history shows that winning the peace is a more important victory. And we have always found a way in peace to advance our interests, to contain and transform our adversaries, and to find political, economic, and social change. In Dean Ashton's words, it is to recognize that our national interest is to maintain as spacious an environment as possible in which free states might exist and flourish. And I would argue that as we head into this era of uncertainty, as the United States addresses its own internal political issues, as we rebuild our political institutions from the ground up, starting with our political parties, and as we have a larger dialogue about what our purpose in the world is, we should keep in mind that this is a world of our making, and we need to keep it that way for our best interests, but also for the best interests of our allies and partners. I thank you very much, and I look forward to your comments and questions. Thank you.